you might want to start turning or scrolling to Matthew chapter 20 verses 20 to 28. Well good morning if you're a visitor here welcome my name's Raj great to have you with us. The lurgy has finally hit me I thought I was invincible clearly I'm not. I'm also just about coming down from the high of the leadership conference in Darlington where, where those of us who were there were really impacted by the spirit of God great extended worship times, hearing Terry's message on Moses, the Moses of grace and purpose. And, and to top all that off, Jeremy and Anne joining us for a few days, just enjoying God's spirit and kind of pressing pause just to be with him. That was so refreshing. And so today we are back in Matthew's gospel, our sermon series, Come the Revolution. Why call it that? Because Jesus always causes a revolution. Have you noticed that? Jesus's ideas on marriage and divorce and remarriage are revolutionary. Jesus's ideas on sex and relationships are revolutionary. Jesus's ideas on forgiveness are revolutionary. Jesus's ideas on racial reconciliation are revolutionary. Jesus's ideas on morality are, guess what, revolutionary. Jesus's ideas on generosity are revolutionary. Are you getting the point? And so we pray each week, don't we, brothers and sisters, again and again, come the revolution by your spirit. Shape us, mould us, break us, make up there look more like down here. Make us revolutionaries, bringing the joy news of Jesus to everyone, everywhere. Come to our prayer meeting tonight. And so in the midst of thinking I had some sort of superior COVID-19 Ironman immune in invincibility, God gets me to talk about greatness this morning, but not as you know it, Captain, because Jesus was revolutionary about this too. You see, there are two ways to define greatness in our culture, and the same was true in Jesus' culture as well. You're either a hero or a saint. In the Greco-Roman world, heroes were worshipped, saints were not. John Ortberg defines a hero as somebody who overcame obstacles to achieve his or her full potential of excellence and therefore receives status, honour and recognition. Life is a striving for this recognition. This was why the Olympics were so important to the Greeks. Cicero wrote, rank must be preserved. Identity was all about how high up the ladder you climbed. Descent is tragedy. Aristotle writes, the great souled man is extremely proud. He despises honours to him offered by the common people. He indulges in conspicuous consumption for he likes to own beautiful and useless things since they are better marks of his independence. If the Greeks were hero worshippers, the Romans were worse. In Caesar's day, he was the great and he agreed. A classic example of this was a book entitled The Deeds of the Divine Augustus, written by Emperor Caesar Augustus. As a finishing touch, it was inscribed in bronze. Not only him, but all the other senators around him grappled for hero status beneath him. The race for honours, it was termed. We'll be seeing a bit of that in the next few weeks, I think. 
So when the Apostle Paul writes to the church at Rome, Paul, a bondservant, a slave of Christ Jesus, even though he was a fully-fledged honorary Roman citizen, to all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints, grace to you and peace from God, as he pens those words to Rome, he is being subversive. Someone else has been redefining greatness for him. A power greater than Caesar, a power greater than Greek philosophy has been at work in his life. Jesus makes us saints, not heroes. So a quick recap to place what we are about to read in, in context of the ongoing story. Last time Paul Woodward left us with the picture of the rich young ruler walking away with his head between his legs as he refuses to give Jesus all he has, refuses to give up his hero status for kingdom greatness. And remember his disciples' response? Do you remember that? When they, when they heard this, they were greatly astonished and asked, who then can be saved? If it's not this guy with all the bling and all the glitz and all the outward show of hero got it togetherness, who else? Peter, if you remember, even more grumpily says, we have left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? And to those giants of the early church, that's what virtually all of them will become. Starting in approximately 60 days, Jesus says, look, fellas, it all hangs on this. In my kingdom, many who are first will be last and many who are last will be first. Another way of greatness was emerging. And then we get to our chapter 20, where Jesus tells a parable about workers who are called by a landowner at different times during the day and offered one denarius to work in his vineyard. At 6am, who wants to work in my field for one denarius, fellas? Yes, please. At 9am, who wants to work in my field for one denarius? Yes, please. 12 noon, the same. 5pm and again. Then... When it comes to payment time at the end of the day, the ones called at the end of the day get paid the same amount as those who were called right at the beginning. And I guess the point of this story is that it's meant to sound unfair. But Jesus is being radically deliberate. Generally, the ones called last had societal and character-related reasons to be called last. A bit like when I was always called last when choosing football teams. And so in this parable, the ones chosen first are in uproar. And Jesus once again concludes, is your eye envious because I am generous? The last shall be first and the first shall be last. And so we get to the passage for today. Let's read what happens next. Matthew 20 verses 20 to 28. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons and kneeling down asked a favour of Jesus. What is it you want? he asked. She said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. You don't know what you are asking, Jesus said to them. Can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, 
you will indeed drink from my cup, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my father. When the ten heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must become your servant, and whoever wants to be first again must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So we are coming to a transition from 21 verses, from chapter 21 onwards. Jesus is entering Jerusalem on a donkey, not a war horse, not a chariot, again re redefining his picture of greatness. So what do we want to learn from here? How does God want to change us? Well, firstly, when Jesus asked about pecking order, he responds by listening to the Father. Did you notice that? See verse 23. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my Father. You see, for Jesus, what his Father said was the path to greatness and purpose. This requires a focus in the midst of all the other messages that are being shouted out all around us. The enemy's voices are many, friends. Jesus' sole ambition was to please his father. Hence, his great prayer, our father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. When Jesus fed the 5,000 and the 4,000, what did he do? Well, he looked up to his father in heaven, thanked him, and then, and only then, unleashed the miraculous power of God, which amazed the people. Jesus always submitted himself to his father. That's how he knew what to do next. Is that how you decide what to do next? In your relationships with the opposite sex, do you follow Love Island or do you follow your father in heaven. In your workplaces, do you follow Sir Alan Sugar from The Apprentice? Or do you follow your father in heaven? In your friendships, do you follow Facebook? Or do you follow your father in heaven? When you're looking to be fruitful and successful, do you follow the X Factor? Or do you follow your father? When you handle your finances, do you follow family fortunes? Or do you follow your father in heaven. The apostle Paul writes, therefore I urge you brothers and sisters in view of God's mercy to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and prove what God's will is, his good, pleasing and perfect will for your life. Another way to apply this is in the area of contentedness and the ordinariness of life. Jesus said the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed that grows slowly, slowly, year in, year out. Remember Matthew 13? Through persevering slowness, often in hiddenness, 
certainly in the ordinariness of life day to day, rather than boom, microwave, two minutes, ping. Are we happy about that? Are those moments where we encounter God? In the Garden of Eden, God the Father made all the normal things, day, night, sun, the moon, plants, fish, sex, eating, work, family, ordinary things. And he says of these ordinary, everyday things, they are good. But then the snake comes in and says, no, they're not. In fact, you need more. That's not enough. He's being stingy. Shouldn't you be chasing something higher? Andrew Wilson writes, God says good and Satan says not good enough. And the world in Adam follows the snake. Or as the theologian Avril Ravine says, I'd rather be anything but ordinary, please. Jubilee, God is looking for those who dwell faithfully, joyfully, sacrificially, perseveringly in the ordinary experiences of life. The highs and the lows slowly making one small breakthrough after another in amongst the many setbacks, failures, toil, often in hiddenness too. In loving and forgiving and nurturing our hormonal teenagers who are navigating life and faith and meaning for themselves. In the ordinariness of being faithful and cherishing your married life. In the ordinariness of work or day-to-day -day routines. Putting the kids to bed. Calming a temper tantrum. Reading a bedtime story. Studying in the library. Handling Handing in an assignment, making phone calls, cutting the grass, caring for someone who is sick, hoovering the room, taking cake round for the neighbour. These are moments of grace to us. Do we cherish them or are we saying that's not enough? I want more. I want to be used in the spotlight. Let me make the same point in another way. Sometimes people ask me, what does your vision for discipleship look like? And I will usually say, well, we come together on Sundays to praise God and feast on his word. We gather in community groups and eat and drink and together we read the Bible and try and make sense of it in our lives. We build nurturing friendships. We pray together. We serve in kids' work and set up and teas and coffees. We share our experiences. We cry together, laugh together. And as I'm describing this, I can see in the other person's eyes a glazing over of boredom. They don't get it. Maybe some of you don't get it. Listen to the Father. He will speak to you through his word, through his spirit, through your quiet times, through the day-to-day -day of life, spiritual disciplines, through friendships in the church, often slowly, over years, often in hiddenness, virtually always in the context of close community. He will show you true greatness, Jubilee. Secondly, true greatness comes from being in Christ. When you're confident in God. You don't need the praise of others. You don't need the glamour and the glitz. You already have it. When you see the father running towards you, throwing his arms around you, 
kissing you, shouting, quick, bring the best robe and put it on her. Put a ring on her finger and beautiful shoes on her feet. Bring the fattened calf, let's have a feast and celebrate. For this daughter of mine was dead and is alive again. She was lost and is now found. You know you are loved. In Christ, we don't need to strive for superiority. We already are sons and daughters of the king. Our failures don't condemn us either because we know God loves us and died to forgive and restore us. Jesus refused to grab the paintbrush from his father's hand to paint his own path to glory. The early church he spawned were like that too. Oxford historian Robin Lane Fox writes, In Christ, taught the Christians, all were equal. And the distinction of rank and degree were irrelevant. In church meetings, educated people had to sit as equals among other men's slaves and petty artisans. When James and John asked their mum to ask Jesus if he would make them his right and left-hand men in the kingdom, their mum, really, their security and confidence was misplaced. Jubilee. We are in Christ. When the Father looks at you by the sacrificial blood of his son's crucifixion, he now sees only Jesus. All of what's true about Jesus is now true in you as you trust in him. God says you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Finally, three, true greatness was bought with a price. John Ortberg writes, A saint doesn't try to grab worth through an endless race of achievement, but receives worth by grace. Verse 28, Jesus, the Son of Man, came to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, ransom might not sound great, but when Peter is saying, what's in it for us? When James and John are demanding recognition, Jesus chooses this word very deliberately to strip them down to size. You see, there is nothing respectable about the person who needs a ransom. He's, a, he's often a slave, a hostage, a prisoner of war or a convicted criminal. Phil Moore writes, Jesus chose the word ransom because it casts us in the role of helpless prisoner and him in the role of saviour and redeemer. It reminds us that the only role that we play in our salvation is a humble cry for help. When Jewish people, however, thought of the idea of ransom, it would have taken them to the Exodus story. In, the, in Exodus 15, Moses told the Hebrews that the Lord had not merely freed them from slavery in Egypt, but had ransomed and purchased them. They were not just freed by might, but by right, as the shed blood of the Passover lamb purchased them from slavery and death. Moving on in 1 Corinthians, the apostle Paul applies this Exodus ransom to the cross of Christ. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. At the climax of history, the cross, God the Father, 
paid his son's blood as a ransom price, which completely satisfied his own righteous justice against all our rebellion, dishonor, disobedience and disregard. You were bought with a price, Jubilee. And so Jubilee, now with hands lifted high, we can sing of we can sing the same song of the redeemed that they sang in Exodus 15. But we sing a better song than Moses ever could. Like Pharaoh after the Red Sea, see, Satan can never really enslave us. Phil Moore writes again, it is only Jesus, the ransom pair, that could turn proud disciples into humble apostles. Nothing less than his ransom price could ever grant them, or us, true freedom. He freely chose to rescue you and me, Jubilee, at the cost of his own life. John Piper puts it, no one is excluded from salvation who embraces the treasure of the ransoming Christ. In the early centuries of the church, church, leprosy was rampant. It meant isolation and cleanliness and death. A church father named Basil had an idea. What if we build a place to love and care for lepers? They don't have money. They don't even have to pay for it. We will raise the money. One of the most famous sermons in that century was by his brother Gregory of Nyssa, also a church father. And it was to raise money for this place, to take care of those with leprosy. This is what Gregory of Nyssa said. Lepers have been made in the image of God. In the same way you and I have and perhaps preserve that image better than we, Let us take care of Christ while there is still time. Let us administer to Christ's needs. Let us give Christ nourishment. Let us clothe Christ. Let us gather Christ in. Let us show Christ honour. This was the beginning of what would come to be known as hospitals. The world's first voluntary charitable institution. Free at the point of entry. The term Bevan later used to start the NHS. Basil and Gregory of Nyssa knew they were bought with a price. Another follower of Jesus named Jean-Henri Dunant couldn't stand the sound of soldiers crying out on a battlefield after they had been wounded. So this Swiss philanthropist said he would devote his life to helping them in Jesus' name. That started an organisation in the 1860s that became known as the Red Cross. Every time you see the Red Cross, you are seeing the thumbprint of Jesus. John Henri Dunant knew he was bought with a price too. A Lutheran pastor in Germany named Theodore Fliedner trained a group of mostly peasant women in to nurse the sick. This led to a movement of hospitals all over Europe and this inspired a young woman named Florence Nightingale, to give her life to care for the sick. Another follower of Jesus became known as Father Damien, a Belgian priest. He worked in Hawaii in the 19th century and created a place where lepers could be loved and cared for. He used to tell them every week, God loves you lepers. And then one week he got up and he said to them, God loves us lepers. He died from leprosy. Theodore Fliedner, Florence Nightingale and Father Damien knew they were bought with a price. And so do you. 
True greatness comes from knowing this and this alone. In the middle of the chapter 20, in verse 17, seemingly randomly, Matthew writes, Jesus took the 12 aside and said to them, we are going up to Jerusalem. They will condemn the Son of Man to death. On the third day, he will be raised to life. For Matthew, this wasn't a random statement at all. Jubilee, we live in the riches and redemption of the third day, don't we? So did Peter, James and John. When Jesus was stripped bare and nailed to a criminal's cross, when the disciples' dreams were left in tatters in the dark hours before the resurrection, when they saw Jesus ascend to heaven and realised that the fortunes of the church now lay upon their shoulders, and when they received power from God on the day of Pentecost, when they passed through the nightmare training programme which Jesus had mapped out for them, these proud men renounced all claim to hold centre stage, but rather enrolled as eager extras in the drama which belongs to Jesus alone. Jubilee, let's live for greatness because you are bought with a price. Don't waste that precious life. Thanks for listening. See you next week.